0: I know an artist who um, creates wedding cake tops. Now, he's a sculptor and he creates wedding cake tops that are a little bit different than your normal ones. He not only creates these little figurines that go on top of a wedding cake, but he actually tries to carve them into the image of the bride and groom. It makes a wonderful gift. He takes the time to gather up all of the references that he needs and he chooses the clay and he puts it on an armature and he takes the time to sculpt it. He paints it and then he puts it gingerly into a box after it's all done and he brings it to the wedding party. They take it and they put it on the wedding cake, covered up, and then at the right time, they remove the covering and everyone looks at this wonderful little piece of sculpture and they marvel at its beauty, at its detail. And the artist sits back and just listens and receives, knowing that it's not the uh, sculpture itself, really, that's really receiving the accolades, but the skill of the artist that created that. And he's satisfied, because he's just unveiled a miniature masterpiece. We're going to be reading this morning, uh, our message today is from one verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Verse 18. But that verse, don't be fooled, is filled with a lot of truth. It's packed, chocked full. We're going to be walking through it and seeing what it is that God does to create his masterpiece in us. I'll read the verse verse in uh, in our hearing and prepare your hearts for it. And the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed from, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, the aim of Paul in the book of Second Corinthians, at least to this point, is to demonstrate the superiority of the ministry of the Spirit that transforms the life of a believer, that transforms the life of a believer in such a way that it makes him fit to behold the glory of God. The superiority of the ministry of the Spirit is superior to the ministry of the old covenant. Now there's a little bit of background before we get to our text that I'd like to share with you, a little bit of history. I'll try to keep it as short as possible, but it's crucial we understand where the setting of this verse is in history, especially in the in the background of the church of Corinth. Now, Corinth was a thriving hub of commerce. It boasted of at least two harbors, one to the east and the other one to the west, in which a lot of goods would come through, which made it prime real estate. And it allowed a lot of people of the creme de la creme of Rome to come in and do a lot of elbow rubbing with other elites. And about 44 AD, Julius Caesar had conquered it and turned it into a colony of Rome and bestowed on Corinth all of the rights and privileges of Roman citizenship. Now with that came even more popularity, even more status. And this place became a combination, if you would imagine, a combination of Martha's Vineyard mixed with a little bit of Beverly Hills, sprinkled liberally with a little bit of Vegas. This was the place to go. It was the place to be. But it was also not only a place of commerce, it was a place with a lot of enticing indulgences that were involved as well. You had... Of course, the, the, uh, the, the blessing of having Roman citizenship, which helped you rub with the elite, but Corinth was also filled with a lot of pagan temples and was very, very indulgent. You could, uh, it, it, these temples exuded opulence and allowed people to uh, combine their worship of the pagan gods with, with physical and sensual indulgences. the the pursuit of material pleasures was interwoven into the very culture of Corinth. Now, not only that, but also education and status, which were important for them, because they would also bring in and draw in very popular speakers, very popular men called the sophists. And the sophists, were men that were lovers of knowledge or lovers of wisdom. That's what the word sophist means. And they would come in and charge an exorbitant amount of money for people to hear what they had to say. They would garner around them disciples who would also pay hefty gold in order to be like the sophist wise teachers. They were super speakers as they were. They were trained in eloquence. They can speak well. They sounded good and they exuded all of these wonderful philosophies and wisdom as it were in order to entice the people in. The prevailing philosophy in Corinth was that the pursuit of wealth and divine favor were optimum. Having divine favor from the gods. And if you were uh, somehow afflicted, if you were somehow poor, uh, that showed disfavor. So the sophists themselves had a disdain for those who were poor. And therefore, whatever wisdom they had would never go to that caste of people. So it was only the wise or only the rich that were able to benefit from this wisdom, as it were. Enter the Apostle Paul. Now, the Apostle Paul was different than the other Uh, preachers out there he came in with a different perspective a different way of communicating he didn't use the high eloquence of the sophists in fact he was and he was so different that it actually turned heads you see rather than charging for what he was preaching he preached for free and and rather than uh, deigning not to get his hands dirty with work he was willing to get into the trenches and support himself By being a tent maker. And what really knocked them off is that he was not very discriminatory about who heard the message. The message went to everybody. Rich, poor, slave, free, male, female. It didn't matter. Everybody was welcome to listen to the message of Paul. And Paul established a church there at Corinth. And for about a year and a half, that that church flourished. As he nurtured it and stayed with them. And established them. However, after a while, you can read about that in Acts 18. After a while, Paul left, but like every other journey, there were pitfalls. The church at Corinth, as soon as Paul left, began to deal with the struggles of their own. The pressures of the world and the pressures of the culture around them and influences made the church at Corinth regress rather than progress. Rather than increase in holiness, they tended to pull back and were doing sins that made the toes of the pagans curl. In response, Paul initially sent a letter through his trusted companion, Timothy. And he was there to address those concerns. Now, we don't have that letter sent to us. But we know that it didn't have an impact. The impact that he, that he really desired. So, he wrote a second letter to them. And the second letter was the first letter of Corinthians. So, actually, the two letters of Corinthians... Uh, You have 1st and 2nd Corinthians. The first letter of Corinthians is really the second letter of Corinthians. The one before that is lost to us, but the Lord preserved for us what we needed to hear in that 1st Corinthians letter. And there he addressed all of the issues that one of the disciples, Chloe, had sent through Timothy to tell him what was going on in Corinth. Things having to do with sexual immorality going on in the church, having to do with issues of worship, going on in the church factions divisions all manner of things that were going on in the church that was causing this place to fall apart and there was a contingent of faithful people who needed answers so Paul penned his letter first Corinthians to address those things and he sent it out and he had heard that it really wasn't making the impact again that he had desired so he went himself and it was known as the painful visit where he went and had to make sure that these, uh, that these disciplines were in place. And he was all but driven out after that visit, and it caused a lot of, uh, of, of problems within the relationships within Paul and the church at Corinth. We don't know the exact details, but we know that there were tensions and things left unresolved. However, within that Corinthian congregation, there existed a profound longing for reconciliation. You see, the message had hit home. The, the one that had sinned eventually had repented. And that news eventually came to Paul through Titus. And he realized that, wait a minute, the, the, the church at Rome, there was something, I'm sorry, the church at Corinth, they have, God has been doing something with them. God is doing something with them. There was a transformation that was going on in them, in them. And so he pens a letter, 2 Corinthians, as a letter almost of reconciliation to encourage them and to let them know that God is indeed the God of all comforts. But there was still a contingent of some other teachers, some with Jewish influences within the church, calling themselves super apostles, that were still fighting against Paul and opposing him. You see, in the culture of the Corinth of the Corinthians, remember we mentioned that if you were going through affliction, if you were going through some kind of suffering, that was an indicator of the disfavor of the gods. In this case, it had to be an indicator of disfavor of Paul. So they used that as a mallet in order to discredit Paul, and and thus from discrediting Paul, they discredit his message. And if you discredit the message, then you have nothing to hold on to, except for them and their other gospel. And they would bring in another gospel, which was no gospel at all. And so, with a heart full of love, he writes and pens 2 Corinthians to affirm his affection and to seek reconciliation with them and to address those very ones that opposed him. Now, in 2 Corinthians, he begins with Paul acknowledging that, indeed, he was suffering. He doesn't turn away from that idea. He doesn't try to explain it away. He says, we have received a lot of affliction Through our ministry to the point of death. We even despaired in death. But God is the God of all comforts. And he comforts us for the purpose of comforting others. With the same comfort that the Lord has comforted us with. There was a purpose to that affliction. It's not a rejection from God. But Paul says it was a means that God used in order to make us be more dependent on him. In chapter 2 verse 17. Furthermore in chapter chapter 3. He addresses those in a way by challenging the Corinthians with a question. You see, he had mentioned, look, we came to the, with the gospel with you, not with, uh, with wanting to somehow lord it over your faith or, or somehow wanting to peddle the word of God as some of these other sophists were, but we came with sincerity of heart. That was our ministry. And now you want letters of recommendation, or, or you want to be the one that gives letter of recommendation from us? In, chapter, th- in uh, chapter 3, he begins, he says, no, 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 no. See, you are our letter of recommendation. He's saying, look, if you want proof of the ministry, of the validity of the transformation that our message has, of this new covenant message that it actually transforms, look at what God has done to you. Look at what, is God, what God has done in your hearts. I don't need a letter from you. I don't need a letter from anybody else. You are our letter. Inside of your heart, written not on tables of stone like the law was, but written on the tables of your heart, not written with ink, but written with the Holy Spirit and by the Holy Spirit. The transformation that is going on in Corinth is you, prima facie evidence that this me, that this. Ministry has validity. God is working through you and you are our proof. The new covenant that was cut by God the Father, inaugurated by Christ through the Holy Spirit, was superior to that old covenant that the Jewish gospel wanted to push forward. And Paul uses an illustration in order to pull that point in, a comparison between the old covenant with Moses and the new covenant of the Spirit. And he talks about Moses and the veil. And in chapter 3, he goes back to Exodus chapter 33. And it's the captivating account of when Moses asked God for an audacious gift. He said, God, I want to see your glory. And I don't think that Moses really knew what he was asking. It was like saying, I want to see the inside of a nuclear power plant. The minute you get in there, you're going to be dissolved. And God says to him, look, no one can see my face and live. But by grace, God did something for him. He says, I will show you my goodness. And he puts him in the cleft of the rock and covers him with his hand. As it, w- as it were, he veils him with his hand and covers and protects him. Puts a barrier for him for a moment. And his goodness, God's glory and his goodness passes by. And God lifts his hand and Moses sees just enough of the glory, of the goodness of God as it recedes. And it was enough to leave an indelible mark on his very skin. It made his skin glow. Can you imagine what it would be like after seeing the glory of God and you come away from that, your face is shining like an extraterrestrial. This is what the Israelites saw as Moses came down from meeting God. His face is illuminated. Blindingly. And it caused a reaction, an almost visceral reaction from the Israelites in this story. Because they pulled back. They were afraid. They couldn't look upon his face. But Moses didn't send them away. He drew them near. He drew the leaders near. And then he drew the people near. And he talked to them. And he brought to them what God had given to him when he gave them the law from the mountain. And then he puts a veil over his face. It wasn't to protect the people from being afraid. As some would say. But I think it was a symbol of judgment. You see their reaction at the glory that they saw. Was very similar to the reaction that they had when they were on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 20 when Moses came back and they heard the voice of the Lord and they backed off and they said, no, we don't want to hear God's voice. That's too much for us. You, 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 Moses, you talk to him and you bring whatever he has to say to us. We need a mediator. We need a barrier here. That same attitude persisted with these Israelites. It revealed their unbelief because they feared rather than approached God. The other thing was, why did Moses put on that veil? And Paul tells us why. He says, so that they would not be able to see the fading nature of that glory. Because that radiance that was on the face of Moses faded away after a while. But the pattern was the same. He would go see the Lord with an unveiled face. His face would go, get recharged, he'd come back to the people, give them teaching, and then he would put the veil back on and wouldn't take it off until he would go back to God in which he would, re, he would, re, uh, he would re, do a reset, as it were. And what didn't they see? They didn't see that glory start to fade. Because the, glo- the fading glory was signaling that something better was coming was coming down the pike. And God said, We're, you can't even handle the glory from the face of Moses. And so, as an act of hardening, they had hardened their hearts. He says, you won't see the rest of the message quite yet. We have to recognize... That the shining brilliance of Moses' consonants only touched, however, his skin. It didn't go any further than his skin. It didn't go into the heart, as it were. But it was surfacy. And that's what the law does, really. The law only comes to us and can make surface changes, but it can't do anything to the heart. The law itself, with its rules and cultures and practices... Cannot affect that profound inward transformation. That has to come from the spirit. It can't purify our consciences. The world and its cultures, its philosophies, and all of the things that it offers, and all of the shiny things that it gives, cannot affect a change in the heart. Can't do it. It can only do its best to make you conform physically or surface wise but not internally, because the letter kills, but the spirit that 's the one that gives light now, before I go on, I want to do a little bit of a, a little bit of a sidebar regarding another veil, something that kind of comes out after this. You see when the law came, it came also with with uh, instructions, very meticulous instructions on how to build the tabernacle. And in turn, it also brought in instructions which translated to the temple. Within that, those instructions, was the construction of the veil within the temple, another veil. And the first veil was judicial judgment. The second veil that was in the temple... Was a picture of this separation between the perfect glory of God, in which the Holy of Holies was in the uh, the Ark of the Covenant, that uh, had the cherubim that overshadowed it, and within that Ark were the Ten Commandments and the the the, uh, the uh, rod that budded, along with a with a, uh, a little flask of manna, was inside of this, representing God His throne and His glory, in which was above between the cherubim, no one could enter that because there was a veil of separation. The perfect, glorious God on one side and corrupt man on the other and they could not pass. The only way they could pass was through blood, through the high priest and priest, and only once a year and not without blood. This high priest would bring the blood of a sacrificed lamb, sprinkle it on the altar for not only the sins of the people, but for the sins of his own that he had inside of him. So that veil in the temple was a veil of separation from God himself. We were separated from God because of our sin and our sin natures. And then there's one more veil. If you read in Hebrews chapter 10, In verse 1. It talks about one more veil. An interesting one I thought. Uh, I'm sorry. Chapter 10 verse 20. Therefore brothers. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places. By the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way. That he opened to us through the veil. That is. Through his flesh. The veil also symbolized the flesh of Christ. You see. God himself put on a veil of human flesh, became human. He who was God did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and took upon himself the form of a servant. And that veil of flesh was torn open on the cross of Calvary that let the blood of Jesus flow out. The new covenant then had been cut. The new covenant was brought in by the blood of Jesus. And that blood, Jesus himself was able to go beyond the veil and bring us, therefore, behind the veil through his blood. And in that temple, that other veil that symbolized that separation between us and God was torn in two from top to bottom. As if God said, the old covenant is finished, it is done, it is no more. He opened the way to us through the veil that is through his flesh, and now we have confidence. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices off and offerings you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. Bird offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure Then I said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written in the book of the scroll. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5. The veil of Moses represented the obscuring of a blinded heart. While the veil of the temple symbolized the division between us and God. However, in Christ, both of those things were dealt with. When a person hears the truth and is convicted of sin and turns away from it, seeking salvation in the Savior, they find themselves unhindered to enter God's presence. You see, I remember for myself the day before I believed in Christ, I had a Bible in my room. And I remember it was a nice little Lutheran Bible, it is, and we still have it at the house. It's dated 1976 when it was given to me. And it, it was a black cover. It says, Holy Bible, red edges. And on the, open, uh, on the inside, the ladies that gave me this Bible had written the way of pet salvation. They'd say, go to page such and such. And I would go. But whenever I would read it, I tell you, I did not understand it. It was gobbledygook as far as I was concerned. My eyes were veiled. I couldn't understand what I was reading. But when God opened my eyes, only through the Holy Spirit giving me new birth, opening my eyes, all of a sudden, I saw that the words of God were the voice of God. He saved me. By his word, by his grace, through his spirit, opened and unveiled my eyes so that I could see. Because only through Christ, chapter 3, verse 14 says, only through Christ is the veil taken away. And in verse 16, it reiterates it. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Why? Because the Lord is the spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Freedom. Amen. Now he has set us up to look into that text. Now we can go to verse 18. And we'll look at that verse phrase by phrase. And we all. This is an all-inclusive phrase. It's a statement that says it's not just me as in Paul, but it's also the Corinthians. But it's not just the Corinthians, but it's all who have believed in Jesus Christ. And we all, what? With unveiled face. We all, in spite of social status, in spite of slavery, freedom, ethnicity, gender, it doesn't matter. The message is for all. We all. Just like the sculptor chooses the clay. Just like my friend who creates these miniatures he chooses the clay that he wants and he works that clay he knows that clay he chooses his material and he determines its use and we all with unveiled face here paul makes a contrast between the unveiled face of Mo, between the veiled face of moses and the unveiled face of the believer unlike moses who had to veil his face and therefore he couldn't be bold about this Covenant that was fading away, we can, with unveiled face, be completely bold because that new covenant has permanence. The old covenant was temporary. The new covenant will last eternally. Verse 12 says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who had to put a veil over his face. You see, our identity and our state has changed. We are no longer in the kingdom of darkness, but now we are in the kingdom of light. We all with unveiled face. It's a positional phrase. It's the idea, this is how we are positioned. See, the sculptor not only takes the clay, but within the armature, he places that clay, and he positions the armature in such a way so that it is in the position. As he sculpts it, it retains its position. It retains its trajectory. Our eyes are now in a different trajectory. They're pointed in a different direction. The clay is being prepared to be transformed. We are, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. We're not looking at the things that are seen anymore, but the things that are unseen We are looking now with our eyes positioned at Christ. With our eyes locked on Jesus now. Before we couldn't look at God. Because we could be consumed. Now the way has been opened. uh, Our eyes have been unveiled. Our faces are unveiled. And we are beholding the glory of God. The glory of the Lord. Remember that the. Old things were temporary. Now we look at the things that are eternal. We don't look at these things by sight, but we look at these things by faith. Though we have not seen him, we love him. Though we do not see him now, but believe in him, we rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of great glory, obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. It is the reality of Christ That we look at. And now the beauty of Christ. That we yearn to see. And now we are in a position to see that. And through that. We are being transformed. This is the hub. Of this verse. If you were to take this verse. 318 and reduce it into a simple sentence. All is. We are being transformed. Noun. Verb. And the action. Into what? Into. The same image. What image? We're molded into the image of the prototype. You see, as the sculptor positions and chooses the clay, positions it on the armature, he also looks at the references. He's given a lot of photographs so that he can make sure that as he molds it, it will reflect exactly what he wants it to see. And we are being transformed into that reference. What is that reference? The Lord Jesus Christ. We're being transformed into the image of Jesus. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts, and get, our hearts and given us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Romans 8.29 says, for those whom he foreknew, he also be predestined to be transformed into the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn of many brothers. And just as that sculpture refers to those references. To ensure accuracy, accuracy. The Lord bit by bit. Subtracts. Clay. Adds clay. Pushes the clay. Cuts the clay. Molds the clay. Shapes the clay. So when he is done. He, it is going to be. Reflecting the image. Of his son. That's why we are encouraged. To not be conformed any longer. To this world. To be transformed by the renewing of our mind. So that by testing we, we may discern God's perfect will. And Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit that is from God. So that we may know the things that are freely given to us by God. Not in words taught by human wisdom, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, but by words taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual truths. The Lord uses his word as his sculpting tools. And he also uses other people as his sculpting tools. He uses the church as his sculpting tools. He uses your brothers and sisters. And he uses the trials in your life. And he uses all of these things that make up your life around you. As a means to transform you into his image. Because he made a promise. Ezekiel Thirty-six, twenty-six. he says I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you I will take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh but this is a process it takes time because we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another it doesn't happen all at once believe me brothers and sisters the day I became I came to Jesus, which was like over 30 years ago. That transformation, and I haven't even attained. I mean, even Paul says, it's not that I've already attained or I'm perfected, but I press on. Even this little bit of change in my life took time. It was a process. The Lord sanctifies us progressively, bit by bit. And who is the sculptor? The final phrase. And this is from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This comes from the Lord. He is the source, he is the catalyst of this change. It's not you, it's not the culture, it's not rule keeping, it's the Spirit, the Spirit of the living God. That same Spirit. That brooded over all creation in Genesis chapter 1 is that same spirit that broods over your soul and changes you and will transform you. And we all, with unveiled face, Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. And this is from the Lord who is the spirit. So what? With any sermon, we have to ask that question. So what? What is the application? What, what, what we bring out of this? Well, it's a common challenge for all believers to wonder why it is that change always seems so difficult. If I looked at the trajectory of our lives, you know, do, you know if I did, were do an evaluation of the trajectory of my life from the point that I came to Christ to the point that I am now, is that trajectory going this way? Or is it going this way? Or does it seem to be going this way? Well, brothers and sisters, I would like to think that the directory, if you zoom in on that graph, you will see this going on. There are times of peaks and there are times of, of valleys. That does happen. But when you pull back on that graph, you'll see that those peaks and valleys ought to be going upward and you ought to be being transformed bit by bit into the image of Christ. Sometimes it feels like New Year's resolutions, where we like we want to be like Jesus. Yes, this year I'm gonna cha- change. I'm gonna change. I'm gonna go through the. I'm gonna go through the fruit of the spirit. Start with 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 patience, with love. I'm gonna start there, and then I'm gonna work all my way through that. Those fruit of the spirit, and boy, by the time this is over, less two hours if you're lucky. The first is love. Oh gosh, I can't do that. Joy, mm-mm. peace, pff. patience, none. Kindness, unless it's the work of the Spirit and the rest. Because this is not a work of man. The fruit of the Spirit isn't another version of the Ten Commandments reduced by one. It is the work of the Spirit is the fruit of the Spirit. So we ask ourselves, first things first, are you truly surrendered to Jesus Christ? I mean, there's no point in talking about spiritual change if you're not even in the kingdom. Are you transformed? Have you been called, as it were, to be his child? Today is the day of salvation. If you are not certain, but you do feel a pull, surrender to Jesus Christ. He paid the price for your sins He broke the veil, remember, so that you could come into the presence of God. Through his blood, through the flesh, he calls all who are weary and heavy laden to come to him. Come to Jesus. Repent of your sins. Leave whatever that hinders you behind. What does that look like? Look, uh, I didn't think I was going to use this, but I thought I'll throw this in there. My, My little grandson is learning how to stand up, right? And so he's crawling across and he gets by our ottoman and he grabs one hand and he puts it up. And in his other hand, he's got a little bottle. And that little bottle he's holding, it's not a drinking, but it's just a bottle of water that crunches. He likes the sound. He holds onto that thing for dear life and he's trying to pull himself up. And every time he pulls himself up, he finds himself teetering over because he needs that other hand. Well, what's the problem? He won't let go of that bottle for the life of him. Once he does, he accidentally let it go. Then he was able to use that other hand and he gets up. Oh, and he's standing up. Then he looks down, he wants his bottle, he leans over, bam, he's back on the floor again. That's what sin does to us. We have to let go of that sin. We have to release it. We have to let it go so that we can stand up. And even as believers, sometimes that sin hinders. I said to the little guy, he says, let go of that sin that so easily entangles, boy. And so to believers, have you surrendered to Christ? Have you let go of that sin that calls you and entangles you? Release it. Repent. Believe him. He made promises and he will not break his promises He never has from the beginning, and he never will into eternity. Today is the day of salvation. We reflect on our culture. We reflect on what we do in our lives in terms of media consumption, in terms of things that take up our time. Are those part of the positioning of our eyes towards Christ, or is that turning our heads to a different position? The TVs TV shows that we watch, the, the games that we play, the, the things that we do on YouTube, whatever, what have you. Do they attract or distract you from Jesus Christ? Are you beholding the glory of God or beholding some other faint glow that does nothing but pull you away from that transformation? Repent. Let that go. You don't need it. You need and desire more than anything the glory of Jesus Christ to transform you through the spirit you must release it are you searching for more rules to follow again you know following another bunch of 10 commandments to get you into one place to the other that rule keeping will not do it for you but a posture of prayer returning and turning your eyes to Jesus Christ ask him seek him, pray to him, plead with him. He will keep his promises. One more thing. is, Maybe somebody points out an area in your life in which you have a problem. Do you respond with some sort of pushback, with defensiveness? Or do you receive it? Chances are it's easy for us to put up our dukes when somebody comes and rebukes us but when the transforming work of the Holy Spirit comes and you submit and you listen with a humble heart and let go of that pride transformation comes the sculptor signs his name on the bottom of his sculpture usually you know, one thing that I found that when you sculpt something, the, something that the sculptor cannot avoid is having his fingerprints all over it. Somewhere, somehow, in any sculpture, you will find the fingerprint of the sculptor on that thing. And some of them will carve their name on the bottom or, or they'll sign it underneath, but some way there's an identifier that there was an artist behind the sculpture. The Lord has written his name on your heart. From the moment of your new birth, from the moment of your spiritual adolescence, your spiritual awkward tweens, even unto your spiritual maturity, the Lord has written his name on your heart. He has taken responsibility And he takes the glory for the transformation that happens within you. What happened to the Corinthians, the transformation that happened in Corinth and repentance came from the spirit which came from the Lord. Any transformation that happens and will happen in your life will come from the Lord. He brings you comfort. He brings you change. He brings you advancement into his kingdom because he has a purpose for it. He wants to reflect his son in your life. When you are unveiled and they look at, the world looks at your life. When all creation looks at what God has done, they will say to God be the glory. They won't be looking at you thinking that you're so wonderful. They'll be looking at the artist, at the sculptor who did this thing. And that is what we're here for. The Westminster Confession of Faith says to us, what is our only hope in life and in death? I'm sorry, that's a Heidelberg Catechism. I'm so sorry. But what is our purpose but to glorify God and enjoy him fully? We are to reflect him. When he unveils, we are his masterpiece. Created in Christ Jesus until unto good works, which he has prepared beforehand That we should follow in them. Why? Because if anyone is in Christ. Anyone is in Christ. He is a new creation. The old. Has passed away. Behold. All things have become new. Amen. Oh Lord you are the living God you more you are the creator and you have called